Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, When it's evening, you say, It'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you can't discern the signs of the times. A wicked and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. And when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, take heed and beware of the, of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves saying, is it because we have no bread? But Jesus being aware of it said to them, Oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Once again, the problem becomes a failure to understand the outside versus the inside. Chapter 15 moves to chapter 16 and it begins in conflict in verses 1 through 12. It continues in confusion in verses 13 through 20. It will conclude with Peter's confession that Jesus is the son of the living God in verses 13 through 20. The conflict here will center around the Pharisees and the Sadducees who will once again unite and ask for a sign from heaven to validate Christ's claims. You should ask yourself this question right at this very moment. What is it that they're looking for? What is it that they're looking for? Are they looking for fire from Elijah, uh, like heaven, like fire from heaven, like Elijah? Are they looking for bread from heaven, like Moses? What is it exactly that they're looking for? But again, it should prompt yet another question. What is it exactly that you're looking for? What is it you're looking for from Jesus? What is it that Jesus needs to say to you or do for you. Jesus is going to answer their request by doing something powerful. He's going to reveal their spiritual condition. And so don't be surprised when you ask the question or you're looking to Jesus and you need something from Jesus or you want something from Jesus. Don't be surprised if he's willing to reveal your spiritual condition as well. As he peeks inside of your heart, 
The Lord Jesus notes their ability to discern and interpret physical things and then their utter inability to discern spiritual circumstances, spiritual conditions. And Jesus will also note their wickedness, which is manifested in their willingness to test God, to tempt God. Because the truth is, whenever you test God or, or tempt God, you're implying something. That he's not who he says he is. That he's not good or gracious. Another clue to their spiritual condition can be found in the religious leader's willingness to embrace empty religion and then forsake the true and living God of their fathers. Jesus is going to point to his own death and his own burial and his own resurrection as the sign that should be the conclusive sign. He's going to point to his ministry, to the, to the Gentiles, in simply making reference to the prophet Jonah, whose ministry was primarily to the Gentiles. So what is it that you believe about Jesus, really? What do you think about him? What do you think about his claims? What do you think when he says about himself that he came down from heaven, that he's the way, the truth, and the life? What do you think? Because in order to answer the questions, you have to ask a very penetrating question. And that is, what is your spiritual condition this morning? What is happening inside of your heart? What is going on inside of you as you look to heaven and you think about Jesus and you think about the Lord and you think about God? What's informed your thinking? And the conclusions that you're drawing? Is it the Bible? Is it the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus? Think for a moment, the Lord is going to issue a series of warnings, declarations of danger for those who would discredit Jesus and seek to degrade and then destroy the message of Jesus. And so, again, what are those warnings? Well, again, beware of those who would discredit Christ in God's revelation in verse 1. Beware of being blind to the signs that are all around you in verses 2 through 4. Beware of false teachings in verses 5 through 12. And so we begin in verse Verse 1, beware of those who would discredit Christ. It says, then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. By the way, what's the purpose of a sign? To do that in part more generically. Most signs are to point you in a direction. Imagine you're on I-25 and you need to be going south and all the signs say north. What does that mean? You're going the wrong way. You know what? I suspect that signs are going to soon be obsolete because everybody just takes their phone and goes, Siri, how do I get 
to Bronco Stadium. Siri, how do I get to the downtown thing? Siri, how do I get here? How do I get there? Siri becomes the way or that you get to wherever it is that you need to go. And so you ignore the signs. I'm, I'm old school. I still look. I still look at the sign. The sign is supposed to point you in the right direction. And so the confrontation begins because I want you to think about this for a moment. Do the Pharisees and the Sadducees believe in Jesus? They do not. Do they want to believe in Jesus? They do not. What you're witnessing is a growing and a deepening hostility to Jesus. Remember, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are quite different from one another. The Pharisees believed and embraced the oral traditions that developed during the Babylonian captivity when the temple was destroyed and the the Jews were sent to Babylon. They had to figure out a way to retain their Jewishness. The Pharisees believed in a biblical resurrection. They read the law. They practiced the law. They read the prophets. They incorporated the prophetic writings into their worldview. The Pharisees believed in angels and the supernatural and miracles. The Pharisees really believed that a Messiah would come. The Pharisees believed that the human soul survived death and would face either reward or punishment, just like some of you. You read a Bible. You believe in the supernatural. You believe for the most part what what God has to say about certain things. You may even believe that the soul survives and will, will face reward or punishment. The Sadducees were a part of an inherited priesthood. These were religious rulers. They were descendants of priests who held power in Jerusalem. They were priestly royalty who ruled Jerusalem and and exercised control over the temple. The Sadducees embraced the first five books of Moses, but they denied the existence of miracles for the most part. They denied a future resurrection. Some of them even denied the survival of the human soul. If you were to ask some of them, what do you believe happens when you die? They would say, you know what? When you die, you die. And that's what happens. And this world is all that there is, just like people today. There are religious people who go to church, but who for not even for a moment do they believe what the Bible says. And if you ask them, why do you go to church? And they, they say, you know, so I can have a nice place to bring my children. It's, it's a nice place to make friends. It's a nice place to interact. It sure beats the bar. And I don't deny that. But they aren't necessarily coming to church for the same reasons that you're coming to church. They were, for all intents and purposes, rationalists, materialists. The Sadducees were political collaborators working with the Roman occupying government to ensure peace and safety and opportunity. And for them, opportunity was opportunity to control the people, opportunity to maintain and retain power over the Jewish people. Like politicians. 
Is it possible that a politician could go to church, but they're not interested in worshiping God and they're not interested in praising Jesus? They're interested in you and your vote. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get confused here. Don't for a moment think that I'm not saying don't vote. I want you to vote. You need to vote. I'm just saying beware of people who will politically and socially and culturally manipulate you. These are two different groups. Do you know what they have in common? They're committed to seeing Jesus gone. William Barclay writes, quote, it would have been well nigh impossible to find two more different sects and parties, and yet they came together in their envenomed desire to eliminate Jesus. And then he says this, which is actually the point. All error has this in common. It is hostile to Christ. And I think that that's true. One of the things that you can tell about all things that unite in error, it is its hostility to Jesus. And this becomes very, very, very important because the truth is if the social, political, material, philosophical position is hostile to Christ and his message of love and grace and mercy and hope, rest assured it's not good, it's evil. I was reading Joel C. Rosenberg's blog. He had posted at his website about Dabiq. I don't know if you know about Dabiq. It's capital D-A-B-I-Q. It is Time Magazine or Life Magazine for the Islamic States. It's the ISIS propaganda journal. And on the cover of their journal this month, it reads, Break the Cross. I wish we would have put the slide up for you. But you can Google it. Just Google Big D A B I Q, and you'll see on the cover of their magazine, Break the Cross, Joel writes ISIS leaders make it clear that they want to bring about the end of days. ISIS leaders vow to break the cross, that is, to slaughter Christians in the Middle East, in the West, around the world, annihilate Christianity from the earth. ISIS leaders lay out six reasons why they hate us. They state that their ultimate objective, and then they explain why they will never stop killing until they achieve total victory. Now imagine a foolish person says, they're just saying that. It's all, you know, they're just sort of saying it. Just like when they read in the Bible, that the devil is like a roaring lion who goes around seeking whom he may devour. You have a recalcitrant, that means hardened enemy. There is an invisible, supernatural being who works every moment of every day to try to figure out a way either to kill you or make you ineffective. Satan is hostile to Jesus the gospel, and to you. The religious leaders are asking for a sign, and note, they want it to be from heaven. 
The reason why this becomes important is because think about what has already happened in Matthew's gospel. Jesus is baptized by John. A voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in Matthew 3, 17. Jesus casts out demons in Gergesa in chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. Jesus heals a paralytic in Capernaum in chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Jesus heals a little girl and raises her from the dead in chapter 9, verse 18. He heals a woman who's been hemorrhaging with from with blood for over 12 years in chapter 9 verse 20 he heals two more men in chapter 9 verse 27 he feeds 5,000 people in chapter 14 he walks on water in chapter 14 22 he heals hundreds more in chapter 15 he feeds 4,000 more in chapter 15 the religious leaders response not enough we need a little bit more we just need a little bit more. Can you imagine if, if the whole world said to Michael Phelps, prove to us that you're an outstanding athlete. How many gold medals do you have to win before someone will say, hey, I think that this person's a world-class athlete. How many miracles does Jesus have to provide in order for a person to be satisfied. And by the way, when a person is asking for a miracle, will they always be convinced by a miracle? I think that that's right, no. And some of the rabbis taught that demons could perform miracles. Supernatural events could come from God or they could come from Satan, they could come from angels, they could come from demons. You know what's interesting to me is they don't dispute these miracles. They don't say, those miracles never really happened. That's not what they wind up saying. What they wind up saying is that these miracles are insufficient in order to get us to change our mind. What they are disputing is the source of the miracles. And so the religious leaders are asking for a sign, a proof that only God can provide. In effect, they're saying, provide Proof, but it has to be the kind of proof that we find acceptable. Just like some of the people you know. Prove to me there's a God. You know, whenever a person says to me, prove to me that there's a God, you know what I always say to them? What would you, what would you deem as evidence? What would you see as sufficient for evidence. You tell me what your terms are. You tell me what it would take to get you to believe that there's a real God who loves you and cares about you. The problem for the skeptic, for the person whose heart is darkened and wicked, no amount of proof will satisfy a person who's committed to unbelief. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14, but their minds were blinded for until this day, the same veil remains 
unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 13, 15, it says, but even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. It's interesting to me because I admit that prior to my becoming a Christian, I was hostile to Christianity. Not just not just angry, not just bitter, not just upset. I obsessed over Christians and Christianity like a blanket over the head in a dark room. There are some people who are so blind, but I need you to understand something. People who knowingly embrace darkness must of necessity recoil at the light, but some who are blind are sometimes willing to embrace the light. And that's the irony. What would it take for a person with a dark heart to open their heart? And if we use the metaphor of of blindness, it's interesting to me that there are some people who have been born blind and who've remained blind all of their life. They all of a sudden get a picture of light. I read the story of a French woman who lived some 50 years ago and she was born blind. And one day someone gave her the gospel of Mark in Braille. And she was so blessed by the story of Jesus that she read it over and over and over again until her fingertips be started to bleed and then they became so callous that they lost their sensitivity. And you know what she did? She cut off the calluses from her fingers. And some of you are going, and, and you should. Because when you cut off the calluses of your fingers and you go right down to the raw nerve, that's all that there's left. And guess what? She began to continue to read and the damage, there was permanent damage done to her fingertips. Devastated. She held her her braille copy of Mark's Gospels to her lips. And she discovered that her lips were even more sensitive than her fingertips. And she continued to study the scriptures with her lips. And she went on to become one of the most gifted Bible teachers of her generation. Isn't it funny? Isn't it interesting? How people who are in the dark will sometimes want to remain in the dark, but people who are looking just for a little light, just a glimmer of hope. And so in verse 2, he says, beware of those unable to discern the signs of the times. In verse 2, he says, he answers, he says to them, when it's evening, you say, it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. Remember what they've asked for. They've asked for a sign to heaven. And so I can almost see Jesus pointing up to the sky. You want a sign from heaven? Let's look up together into the sky you look up into the sky and in the evening you say it's going to be fair weather for the sky is red and by the way the word red here means dark and in the morning it it will be foul weather today for the sky is read red dark and threatening hypocrites you know how to discern the face of the sky but you can't discern the signs of the times 
the Lord's response is at first indirect. He points out to the religious leaders that if they see a red sky in the evening, they immediately think, hey, it's going to be a good day. It's a good day. It's a fair weather day. And when people wake up, if they see the clouds gathering, if they see a storm coming, if they see a darkening cloud begin to billow and then make its way, they are able to discern, hey, you know what? It looks like it's going to rain today. It looks like we're going to have some foul weather today. And once Jesus, in one sense, Jesus is saying, look, if you want to know what the weather is going to be like, if you want to know what kind of a day it's going to be, face the sky. People in rural areas have a saying. A red sky at night, shepherd's delight. Red sky in the morning, that's the shepherd's warning. And so what were the signs of the times that they sought to ignore? In the New Testament, there's several references to times and time. There's a time to repent, Mark chapter 1, verse 15. A time of refreshing, Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Times of restitution, Acts 3, 21. Times for results, Matthew 13, 30 and Mark 11. A time of reformation, Hebrews 9, 10. A time of redemption in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. And in the Greek language, the word for time is chronos. You know that word. We get the word chronology from it or chronometric dating it's a word that is translated time in Matthew chapter 2 verse 7 a while in John chapter 12 verse 35 a space in Revelation 2 21 seasons in Acts chapter 20 verse 18 it can mean a set time it can mean a designated time Depending on the context, the religious leaders could discern or understand certain physical signs, but they were utterly unable to comprehend the spiritual revelation that God was giving in Christ. How could they be so utterly unaware of God's dealing with his people in the person of Christ? But it should bring all of these things back home to you. As you look at your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your family, your friends, the people you work with, you look around them and, 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 and you have a conversation with them. And every once in a while, you might be tempted to say, how could you be so utterly oblivious of God in your life? How could you not know that he loves you? How could you not know that he cares about you? How could you not... Be aware that you exist because he thought about you. He brought all of this universe into existence. He brought your mother and your father together. He placed you in the circumstances that he placed you in. And he allowed your world to unfold in such a way. Not so that you would not know him and reject him. But so that you would know him and, and accept him. Times of restoration were predicted for Israel in Acts chapter 3, verse 21. 
There was repeated explanations that were given to the people of Israel to to expect that help was on the way and that hope was on the way. Both Paul and Peter argue that when the fullness of time had come, Christ appeared to accomplish his redeeming work in the person of Jesus in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, that God was at work, he was at work, he was at work, and that at the perfect moment, at the exact moment, that he had ordained that help would come. And W.H. Griffith Thomas says, quote, where willing heart is, there's spiritual vision. And where there is no vision, there is for people neither life, Proverbs 29, 18, nor warmth of heart. Pharisees' dullness came from their spiritual deadness. For if they had cared, they would have seen, unquote, dullness comes from deadness. No wonder Jude predicted in Jude 1.18, in the last days, mockers will arise, but the very fact that the mocking and the skepticism and the hostility takes place, it becomes proof positive of deadness of heart. And so in verse 4, Jesus says, a wicked and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah and he left them and departed. Once again, Jesus gives his answer. His answer, the only sign you're going to get is from the prophet Jonah. By the way, has he already mentioned this? He did in chapter 12, verses 39 and 40. There he gave us a little bit of explanation. Here he gives none. Jesus provides no further explanation as though his formal statement is sufficient and final. And if you just turn one page back to chapter 12, or maybe some of your Bibles, two pages back, to chapter 12, verse 39... In chapter 12, Jesus says, don't tell me I wrote down the wrong passage, but here, here we go. In verse 38 of chapter 12, he says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and he said, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here, the religious leaders have been given repeated invitations to repent of their sin, to hear and understand. They have been given repeated exposures 
to the life of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the offerings that are given over and over and over again. And I'm going to suggest to you that no group of people in all of the world has ever received more invitations than them, than this generation here. Imagine all of the people all over the United States of America. You hear the television broadcast. You hear the radio broadcast. There are churches that open their doors in all 50 states, in every major city. There is unprecedented opportunity to hear, to understand, to believe. The religious leaders have been given repeated, repeated invitations to turn, yet the religious leaders persist in their rejection Again, revealing that they're spiritually blind. The spiritually blind aren't simply in darkness. I think we need to go one step further. They seek darkness. They crave darkness. They seek darkness. They crave darkness. And then they curse the light. How else can you explain the Islamic states and the headline? How else can you explain, not only do we disagree that Jesus is the Lord, it's very, very important to us that each and every Christian that we encounter dies. Voltaire, the French infidel, was so bitter against Christianity that he said, quote, even if a miracle should be wrought in the open marketplace before 1,000 sober witnesses, I would rather mistrust my senses than admit that a miracle took place, unquote. So imagine, once again, that you say to your unbelieving friend, what are you willing to accept that Jesus is the Lord? There's nothing you could say. There's no proof that you could offer. There's no, there's no miracle that could be embraced. There's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing that's going to get me to believe that Jesus is the Lord. The spiritually blind are not only in darkness, they seek it, they crave it, they curse light, and then they sink deeper and deeper and deeper into the darkness. The spiritually blind seek to discredit Jesus. The spiritually blind reject repeated warnings. The spiritually blind are characterized by hypocrisy. The spiritually blind fail to discern the times. The bigger question that we need to ask is what can you do about that? And Paul writes and he says, these people are blind. Pray. Pray for them. Pray that God by his Holy Spirit will alleviate, that the scales will somehow drop from their eyes so that they can have some sense in which to be able to go forward. The mentality of the heartened skeptic is so profound. Voltaire also said, quote, 100 years after my death, there won't be a single Bible to be found anywhere in Europe, unquote. By the way, after Voltaire's death, the European Bible Society bought his house. 
And to this very day, it's the headquarters for the publication and distribution of the Bible to Europe. For your hardened skeptical friend, since they don't believe in anything, you might encourage them to leave everything to you. <laughs> what is the sign of the prophet Jonah? Remember, it's recorded in Luke chapter 11 as well, verses 29 through 32, and what we already read, the evil and adulterous sign seeks, generation seeks after a sign. What will be the sign? Three days, three nights in the belly of the great fish. Once again, Jesus tells them that there's going to be a sign. It is going to be appropriate. It's going to be evident. It's going to be conclusive. Jesus will die on a cross. Jesus will come back to life. And imagine the person says, I don't even believe that. And again, Jesus leaves his foes behind. He's going to cross to the other side of the lake in verse 5. He's going to wind up on the northeastern shore of the Galilee. Again, the word left is very interesting in the original language because it carries with it the idea of abandoning, leaving. Abandoning. The idea is you leave and you never go back. Imagine you are in a place like I was in New Orleans, Louisiana in 2005 when the hurricane came and the floods came and your life, your property, your home, your goods, your services, people would go back to the place, but they had to leave everything because it was Filthy and moldy and disgusting and useless. The spiritually blind will struggle with the basic doctrines and the meaning and the importance of the death of Jesus and the, the resurrection of Jesus. And so quickly, look what he says in verse 5. Now, when his disciples had come to the other side, remember they're in Gentile country, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so they reasoned among themselves saying, is it because we've taken no bread? Think about what's happening right now. The disciples had forgotten to take bread. Where are they? Gentile country. Who are the only bakers around? Look, if you ever get a chance, go to Federal. They have a panaderia there. It's a Mexican bakery. If you want Mexican pan dulce, if you want real, authentic Mexican sweet bread, guess what? You have to go to a Mexican bakery. In order to get Jewish bread, you have to go to a Jewish bakery. What happens if you go to a Gentile bakery? Gentiles and Jews, do they have fellowship or no? No. If Jews buy bread from a Gentile, they're not just purchasing bread from a Gentile. They're purchasing unclean bread. If they eat unclean bread from a Gentile, what happens to them? 
in their worldview, they become unclean. But they keep getting it wrong. They keep getting it wrong. They keep getting it wrong. They constantly confuse the external and the internal. They keep getting it wrong. They keep getting it wrong. Physical issues versus spiritual issues. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves? Because you brought no bread. Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Remember what Jesus is basically saying. Whether we have clean bread or unclean bread, if Jesus is around, what does that mean? By the way, if it's God's will for you to starve to death, you're going to starve to death. But if you're around Jesus, you're never going to starve to death. Remember, we already said this last week. If you're in an Italian house, if there's food, you're going to eat. It's just, it's just it, those two work together. You are going to eat. So when Jesus says, I need to warn you, I need you to be careful, I need you to be on guard. Leaven or yeast, remember, was the key ingredient that caused bread to rise. Leaven or yeast becomes a symbol of that which is evil. Remember, during the Passover, leaven was prohibited. It was forbidden. All traces of the leaven had to be removed before the Passover celebration. Small amounts of leaven could cause even large loaves to rise. So how much evil and hypocrisy does it take to create chaos? How much wickedness, evil, chaos, hostility does it take to undo good? The evil teachings of the religious leaders and the evil teachings of the political leaders would permeate and then contaminate and so we discover yet another thing about the spiritually blind. They're willing to tolerate little compromises with evil because it doesn't matter to them. If yours is a political goal or a social goal, it makes perfect sense that you would compromise with evil. If you are a religious person, but that's all that you are because you don't ever think about how your religion is going to affect your heart in the way that you live, then guess what? The spiritually blind will tolerate little compromises. So how can we be on guard against false teachers and, and false teaching? We have a, a strong and a sure commitment to Christ. And to the Bible's teachings about Jesus. You see, the only way that you're going to be able to be on guard is to have an appropriate defense. Some of you may be watching the Olympics. I would invite you to take a good look at the fencing competition. On the fencing competition, remember, they begin it with on guard. They have defenses that they've set up in order to minimize harm. Do you find yourself growing in your understanding of Jesus or is it shrinking? Do you find yourself growing in your understanding of the power of the Holy Spirit? The gifts of the, of the Holy Spirit. Are you increasing in your friendship with Christians? 
Have you joined a church that values worship and discipleship and fellowship and healthy fellowship with one another? When Jesus says in verse 10, nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up, he's calling them to remember the miraculous power of Jesus. How could they forget the most obvious lessons from both feedings? How could they conclude that the most important thing in their lives was to pack meals for the journey and forget that they were on the journey with Jesus? What are we going to do? You're on the journey with Jesus. What does the future hold? You're on a journey with Jesus. Where are you going to the future that he has allotted for you? You are with Jesus now and you will be with Jesus later. He will be with you on the journey. Let me ask you a question. What is it that you need if you're with Jesus? And Jesus will ask a series of questions. And by the way, these are all rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question is one that doesn't necessarily require an answer. It assumes the answer. When Jesus says, oh, ye of little faith. And then he says, don't you understand? The word understand here includes the idea of perception. Aren't you getting it? He's saying. Are you still struggling? Are you still struggling? Are you still struggling to perceive who Jesus is? Are you still struggling whether or not the Bible's really true? Are you still struggling with the identity of Jesus? Are you still struggling with the message of Jesus? Do you really understand who he is? Do you really understand what he's done? Do you really understand what he's prepared to do? And so in verse 11, it says, how is it that you do not understand that I didn't speak to you concerning bread? But to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, then they perceived, understood, that he didn't tell them not to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I want you to think this through in the whole text. Jesus' disciples in Gentile country are still holding on to their old cherished ideas that Jews were clean and Gentiles were unclean. That what you put in your mouth could somehow have an effect on your heart. And Jesus is basically saying, no, what you put in your heart will have an effect on how you live your life. By the way, the Lord is going to point out the issue isn't whether or not Jesus can make physical bread, but to be on guard in order to not be influenced by the false teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What is the leaven of the Pharisees? It's legalism. What is the leaven of the Sadducees? It's liberalism. The leaven of the Pharisees is you can't do anything. And the Sadducees, you can do everything. And that polarization both points to the fact that they don't understand who Jesus is and what he wants. So what are the dangers? 
the dangers of legalism and secularism. It penetrates, it influences. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are both hostile to Jesus, but this becomes the ever-present reality of whether it is legalism or liberalism, whether it is materialism, whether it is philosophical or political socialism, whether it's mysticism or supernaturalism, what all of them have in common is they unite together to defy God and defy Jesus. The Pharisees suffocated true faith by focusing on the that the just shall live by faith. And sometimes we as Christians forget that God is holy and he'll have nothing to do with evil. And if you aren't thinking right at this very moment, you mean he won't have anything to do with me, then you're not thinking clearly. Because when I say that God is holy and he won't have anything to do with evil and you draw the conclusion that you're good, you're drawing the wrong conclusion because there's nothing good in me and there's nothing good in you. And the only thing that could possibly be described as good is the reality that God does in your life when you come into a right relationship with Jesus and your sin is forgiven and you're made whole and new and well. And this is why Paul can say it is Christ in me and that there's nothing good that lives in me but the reality is you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and your Savior and when that happens you have grace and mercy and peace and forgiveness and hope. Christianity isn't legalism and it isn't liberalism it's liberty Christianity is not legalism and it is not license it is Liberty. And we're not driven by our feelings. We're driven by our faith. Oz Guinness said, quote, Mistaken teaching spawns a view of faith that is unbiblical, weak and ineffective in combating doubts that come from an emotional source. The battle is lost before it begins. The understanding was not in control in a time of faith, so it's not in control in times of doubt. The emotions were everything when faith was there, and now that doubt is there, they're still everything. All that is different is that they have changed sides. But if emotions are really all that matters, then neither faith, nor doubt have anything to do with the truth. They're simply the names that we're to give to their changing moods, unquote. Have you come to grips with the fact that maybe your mood and maybe your emotion isn't rooted and grounded in the truth? It might even be disconnected from the truth. And so, as you can imagine, 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 imagine at this point that you ask and answer the question, what does the Bible say? And what do I feel? Maturity, simplicity, integrity begins to take place in the Christian's life when they 
say to themselves, it doesn't matter what I feel. What matters is what God has said to me concerning Jesus. That when Jesus says it, and I believe it, I can walk in confidence, free. Christianity, not legalism. Christianity, not license. Christianity, free to love Jesus, obey Jesus, serve Jesus, submit to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would help us through this maze, sometimes of emotion, sometimes of the popular culture, pushing us in one direction or the other. But Lord, we pray that we would think carefully and obey completely Paul's words that we're not to be conformed to this world that we should beware of being poured into this world's mold and that we would rather desire to be transformed by the renewing of our mind and the cleansing of our heart and the destiny of our soul. And Lord, we pray for our moms and dads and brothers and sisters, our friends and family, our neighbors. Lord, we we pray for everyone who's hostile to Jesus, embittered and dark. Lord, we pray that you would place them on our heart, that we could plead for their souls, that the dark scales would drop from their eyes, and that they would discover that there's grace and mercy and faith and hope that's available for them. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that they would pray that simple prayer. I am a sinner. I need a Savior. I want my heart to be cleansed. I want the darkness to go away. Instead of rejecting the light, I want to embrace the truth and the light that's been given to me in Jesus. And I want to walk. Not in fear, but in confidence. Not in despair, but in hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.